Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. One of the sort of um, little litmus tests I use, used to use with my consulting clients is I would ask them, like, what is the food or behavior that you are most terrified or resistant to giving up? And they'll say cheese, mm. beer, wine, you know, uh, Instagram, uh, you know, whatever. And I'm like, that's your biggest problem. They just handed me the answer on a silver platter. The thing that we're most resistant to giving up is the thing that we have the tightest grip on from a sort of addictive standpoint. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. I don't know about you, but this time change is kicking my butt. I do not like when this time change happens, but this week I have a very special guest for you who's going to talk a lot about seasons and the changing of seasons, and that guest is Dallas Hartwig. You may know him from Whole30 fame. He is the co-founder of Whole30 and other books like It Starts With Food and More Social, Less Media. His latest book, The Four Season Solution, is very different from these other books. It's very, very much less prescriptive, much more fluid, and it's much more of a philosophical application of how humans should be living. And we talk about this through proxies like nutrition, like movement, sleep, and our social networks. So, Every episode, as you know, we have our extra geek, extra magic show notes. And if you want my notes and my prep notes from my conversation with Dallas, head over to bettershow.co forward slash show notes. That's S-H-O-W-N-O-T-E-S. And you're going to get basically my virtual prescription pad. You're going to get studies that I have accrued in the preparation for my conversation and personal best practices, what I've learned and how to implement the parameters from what we discussed in today's episode. And I feel like I probably could have spoken to Dallas for a couple of hours. Uh, very, very insightful, very philosophical, but also very practical pearls of wisdom in terms of how we should be living. So we talked about his new book, as I mentioned, The Four Season Solution. And in it, we talked about this idea of expansion and contraction. 
and expansion, meaning that we are outward and we are learning and we're gathering information and how we as a, as a society, in his opinion, and this would be backed by, you know, the chronic diseases that we see, we are always in a chronic state of expansion and we don't actually con contract and get back to ourselves and get back to our home and reflect and dream. So we talked about these two parallels, expansion and contraction. And then we moved into some of the oscillating behaviors that happen throughout the year. So summer behavior, the transition from summer to fall, fall to winter, winter to spring, and then spring to summer. And we talked about sleep. This is a really big topic for so many men and women that I speak to. Sleep is a big issue. So we dove into the science of sleep. We went on a little geeky magic carpet ride as we normally do on the podcast. And pulled out some pearls for movement and how our seasonal, our movements and our training and our exercise regime should be ch changing from summer to fall to winter to spring. And our social connection, how we can be exuberant and extroverted in the summer. But as we move to the opposite pole winter, we want to be deepening our connections with our most intimate relations, relationships. So like I said, I feel like I could have talked to him for hours. This was a really rich, robust conversation. So please, without further ado, with a cup of coffee, because I know that we are, we've lost an hour of sleep when this podcast comes out, enjoy my conversation with Dallas Hartwig. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. 
This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea chocolate medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. All right, Dallas, welcome to The Better Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on here today. Thank you so much for having me. So a lot of people have been following your work now for the past decade, and it's really been focused on nutrition. So mm-hmm. co-founder of Whole30, it starts with food. And the book that we're going to talk about today, your latest book, The Four Season Solution, is vastly different. It's very different from those books. It's not as prescriptive, mm-hmm. and it's much more, much more fluid in in the writing and even in the recommendations that you make. And in many ways, and I I use this pun deliberately because I know you're a physical therapist, it's the skeleton, like it's the backbone of all, right? Of the the other frameworks and the other work that you've put forward. Yeah, I often describe the Four Seasons Solution as the prequel to It Starts With Food. Because ultimately, you know, obviously food is of profound importance and of huge impact and the whole 30 as such a little microcosm of that is such a great example, but um, there's so much more to healthy living than food. And there's so much more to vibrant, rich, uh, exciting living than just health. And so we're kind of, I'm sort of ascending up the chain of, um, if you think about it from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we deal with the most basic um, sort of survival needs of food and sleep and shelter and safety and those sorts of things. And then all the interesting stuff happens and kind of gets built on that foundation. So this is me paralleling my own personal journey with the exploration of things above and beyond just what we eat or how we sleep or how we exercise. That's wonderful. And where I'm, I'm curious about where the inception of this book, was it from the Maslow's hierarchy? Is that what inspired this? Was it your own life? No. Um, it was kind of a weird mishmash of stuff. I mean, my background is anatomy and physiology, um, preceding physical therapy. And so I always kind of had that, like, how stuff works, why we do things, curiosity. And when I started digging into nutrition really heavily in about 2006, um, I started thinking about it and certainly early came across the idea of an evolutionary mismatch, a mismatch between the information encoded into our genes, into what our bodies expect, and the radically different modern environment that we've created around us over the last 10 or 12,000 years since the dawn of agriculture. So we have this mismatch. And that idea is sort of hiding in the subtext of it starts with food. And some people talk about um, our dietary approaches from a paleo type approach. I don't necessarily tend to use that label as the best label for it, but that's ultimately what it is. It's a, it's, it's a uh, perspective based on evolutionary biology. So this book expands on that. So this, is re- this was really hiding in the background all along right. of the, the, the evolutionary mismatch, um, not just in the way that we eat, but in the way that we sleep and the way that we move and the way that we connect. And, you know, when I first kind of incepted this type of oscillatory model back in 2009 or 10, I didn't 
think about the way that we engage with other people in an oscillatory sense. And that sort of came later. Um, so it was originally just food and movement and sleep. And then later I was like, oh, actually there's some really interesting um, parallels and patterns with the way that we connect to ourselves, to place, to others, and to a sense of purpose in this kind of larger oscillating system. So it got more complicated over the years. What I, what I love about the book is throughout you are re- the through line is that you are, you continue to come back to these foundational basics around human health. So you've talked about this in terms of evolutionary biology, and we've become so reliant as a modern society on things like technology to the point where, you know, if you and I went out, or maybe, maybe not you, you'd be a bad example, but anyone else, if we went out and I said, what time is it? You know, right. without, without a watch, you know, we wouldn't be able to look up in the sky and say, well, it's about, you know, it's about midday or right. you, know, you wouldn't be able to tell. So I, I love that because when, as, as a modern society, if we are divorced from our own oscillatory patterns, how can we attune to the natural world order or the natural rhythms uh, of the natural world order? And you talk about this as the great separation of humans in the book. Yeah. So let's start there. Why don't you explain to the listener what that means, what that is, and then we can parse that with a, and we can now then move into expansion and contraction. Great. Great. I I love that you're sort of feeding me the easy answers here. Um, (laughs) But the great separation is conceptually the place um, in sort of human evolution, um, going back to kind of the cognitive revolution when we started having consciousness and having the ability to think of ourselves as Um, as separate creatures and ultimately a separate species that were sort of hierarchically organized above and separate than animals and kind of the rest of the rest of everything else that is the earth, the sort of the super organs of the earth. So the great separation is the symbolic hubris that we are better and separate and we are in control and almost the idea that we have this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a biblical idea. We have dominion over the earth. And um, that, of course, that idea comes from about the same time as we started creating our own food through agriculture. And sort of we had this, this hubris, this arrogance that has started to arise in us as a species that we were different and better and separate and above. And that was the point. That was that great separation, which occurred in greater and greater ways over time. But that was the time when things started to go south um, because we were no longer of the earth, we were on the earth. Mm -hmm. And being on the earth allows us to radically abuse and, um, and disconnect from what's actually going on. And to your point, disconnect even from our own intrinsic biological rhythms, and all of the things that go on outside, obviously, the, the light dark cycle is an obvious example. But we have the lunar cycles and the annual cycles, like we have all of these oscillatory things that go on at the cellular level, at the organism level and at the sort of like macro environmental level. Mm-hmm. And we're so divorced, again, you use such great words here, so divorced from those experiences. And we have that separation at such great cost um, because we are trying to take an oscillatory dynamic organism and cram it into this binary black and white digital kind of almost electronic world where we have light switches that you're either off or on. You're either at work or you're not. Mm -hmm. You're either asleep or you're awake. And we're expected to kind of toggle between these two extremes. And really when you're looking at whether it's a, you know, a lunar cycle is a great example. um, But even the length of the length of day across the course of a year, it's a sine wave. 
And there's only moments spent at those two extremes. And almost everything else is somewhere in that in-between point. And we do it the other way around. We spend almost all of our time at those two extremes and very little time experiencing the slow shifts season to season across the course of the day or whatever. Yes. And those transitions. So to your point, it's not a 90 degree angle, right? So it's not either on or off. I love that. It's a, it's a gentle sloping curve. Yeah. 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 And this bleeds into, uh, sorry, did you want to say something there? Nope. You're good. Yeah. I I was going to say this bleeds into the idea of expansion and contraction and how you describe in the book that we have been stuck in this, this expansive or we're addicted to this idea of expansion. So let's unpack that a little bit and what that means. Yeah. Um, and expansion and contraction really kind of conceptually is, is something that appears in so many different areas of life. And whether it is the, ex- the sort of physical expansion of our world that happens each day. So we wake up in the, we're in a, a small room or a cave or a house and it's a physically very small space. And then we go out and the world expands and we go out into the world and we do stuff and we come upon new ideas and new people and new experiences. And then at the end of the day, we come home and our world contracts again. And so there is this expansion and contraction cycle. It's almost like expansion of our lungs. We're, we're breathing in a sense, expansion, contraction. And that occurs across the course of a year as we spent, do a lot more kind of physical expansion and we do road trips in the summertime and we go on hiking trips. But in the wintertime, it feels intuitive and um, if we honor it, if we feel it, we have a physically contracted cycle in the wintertime as well. And that same thing happens across the course of a lifetime. We have, we start as infants and toddlers and children. And our world is very, very small. It's how far we can crawl or walk, you know, or, or be within kind of physical proximity of our, our parents and families. And then the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time we're in our early 20s, we're backpacking across Europe and we're doing all these enormously expansive things which are totally normal and appropriate at that age and we continue to expand into traveling the world moving away from our hometowns having families meeting people trying new careers all this stuff and all of that expansion is normal and and amazing and and such a great opportunity for us to experience such beautiful rich aspects of living and there's another side of that coin. There's an equal and opposite experience there, which is the contraction cycle of coming home and reconnection and belonging and being present and of bringing things home with us, whether it's whichever, any of those timelines, it's bringing home what we have collected and learned and gathered and through the experience of abundance and gratitude and generosity, spontaneously sharing those with people around us in a deeply connective and enriching way, and then resting and restoring ourselves in the nighttime, in the winter, literally, and in the winter of our lives. So the same expansion contraction cycle repeats itself on different timelines. And it's interesting when we talk about the forest from the trees, the the arc of of life, I love what you're talking about with this expansion in our 20s and our 30s and even into our 40s. So I'm in my early 40s now Mm -hmm. and I'm starting to think of, well, how can I uh, leave a legacy? How can I help other women who are, you know, professionally behind me that I can Mm -hmm. help lift up and how can I leave something for them? So I'm starting to see that Maybe I'm not quite ready yet to, to fully transition into my fall, but that's yeah. sort of what I am starting to consider in my own life as well. Well, and I'm in exactly the same place. I'm also in my early 40s. I'm experiencing the same kind of thing. I'm thinking about what can I give back? What can yeah. I leave? How can I contribute to something larger than myself? Because I've had um, a, a rich and amazing life. 
And um, I could continue to write books and do speaking engagements or change a career and do something entirely and push hard and hustle and grind to what? To earn more money, I guess, right? That's, that's why we do that thing. <coughs> and I think the real tragedy there is that we lose the ability to be fully present and fully immersed in the place where we are when we haven't completed the preceding phase. And I argue in the book implicitly, and I'll make the point here a little more explicit, that, <coughs> that um, we, each of those phases have to happen in order. And if we don't finish them, we will kind of always kind of feel that uncompleted thing. So, uh, for example, I live here in Utah, and there are a lot of um, Mormons here, and they often get married much younger than other parts of the country. And so if you get married at 19 and start a family and start a career track and don't have the opportunity to fully do that expansion, exploration, seeking novelty, excitement kind of experience, which is really a dopamine-driven phase, if you don't have the opportunity to do that to its natural completion, whatever that is for you as an individual, it will continue to chirp away in your ear for years and decades to come. Yes. And sort of in my observation of just society living here in Utah for now almost a decade, I see that behavior pop up in, um, in later years and sometimes to tremendous destruction to, to families, to careers, to lives, um, because there's a, there's a calling, there's a hearkening back to a thing that never really got done. Right. And that's true of all of the phases. And in this space where we're going from a sort of summer of our lives, you and I, in towards the fall of our lives and, and shifting our thinking about what is coming, because I think we're kind of in that cusp changing moment. If we don't really feel like we've done the summer, the working hard, the stress, the productivity, the contribution, the accumulation of resources, like doing the thing, if we don't have that sensation, we won't spontaneously have the sensation of what is my legacy? How do I want to contribute to community? What do I look, you know, what happens after me basically? Um, because we haven't really done that thing in, in its entirety. And I see this in people who sometimes, um, for example, will get caught up raising a family and not have the opportunity to chase their sort of professional intellectual dreams or the other way around happens both ways. Those are kind of the two major ways that we sort of apply our energy in summertime. Mm-hmm. And if we don't do that, it will continue to call to us until we're done, until we've done that thing. Um, so what I argue is that all of these things are healthy and normal and appropriate and um, contributive to your life experience. And we need, neither need to overdo them nor underdo them. And the problem that I'm seeing in society very broadly, kind of the whole modern world, is that we are over-focusing on the fun, exciting, glitz and glam, dopamine, adrenaline, cortisol aspects of life, which are the expansive aspects. And we are totally devaluing, dismissing, and sometimes avoiding the contractive fall and winter phases, not just across the course of a lifetime, as we, you know, we have the the fear of getting older and the sort of the terror about, you know, fear of mortality, but also the delay of thinking about what you and I are thinking about of legacy and what's beyond our lives until after we retire at 65, which is a couple of decades later than I argue would be considered more normal, biologically speaking. So we have this place where we extend that summer. In the book, I call it chronic summer. And that 
artificial and unnecessary modern extension of summer comes at tremendous cost because the behaviors that go with chronic summer produce chronic disease. And you and I working in health and wellness, chronic disease is like the thing that makes people's, it's what destroys people's lives in the modern world. So if we can hearken back to, okay, how do we wrap up summer behavior in a more natural way such that it doesn't have to produce chronic disease and we've made millions of lives better. Right. And you introduce in the book, this is so powerful, you introduce in the book this idea of deliberately introducing these contraction phases. And you, you talk about it in terms of seasons, which we're going to talk about. I want to sort of chunk each season out, uh, where we are contracting into ourselves, into our homes, into offline communities, into um, you know, more intimate social interactions with people. What does it mean to you, Dallas, to contract meaningfully and intimately? What does that mean when you say that? Hmm. Um, So to me, what happens in the expansion phase is we are looking outward. We are looking at the world. We are learning things. We're meeting new people. We are, the focus is primarily outward. And that's good because that allows us to observe and learn and bring things home. And so there's a pivotal moment there between the end of summer and the beginning of fall where we we change direction and we pivot back towards the contraction phase, which means we start to look inward. That's not just in terms of sort of self-awareness, self-knowledge, self-compassion, but it is also the contraction phase that helps us to be more present to what is here and now, because in the expansive, exciting, distracting experience, we are looking out there and in the contracting phase, we are being much more present. So through presence, through, and this, this shows up in mindfulness meditation is a great sort of portal into that space of slowing down and really being here now. Um, but when we are more present, it opens up the opportunity for us then to notice what's around us, to be, to notice actually we do have enough of whatever, right? Because the expansion phase is of seeking and of the sensation of I don't have enough, I need more. And the sensation of the contraction phase is, I'm here now, I have enough, I am enough. And out of that, spontaneously arises gratitude. And I challenge people often to really get into a space where they notice and really viscerally experience gratitude and to try to resist the urge to be generous of of, of time, of resources, of attention, And in the modern world, attention is such a scarce commodity now. Um, So being generous even with your attention is something that just sort of happens and flows out of this experience of gratitude. But we can't have that when we are constantly stimulated, when we are looking outward, when we're having this sort of expansive um, experience all the time. But we have to sort of tear ourselves away from the Las Vegas Strip to be able to nourish ourselves, to reconnect. Um, not, you know, you, you mentioned reconnecting with people who matter most to us. And that's kind of the obvious one, right? Because we have this huge epidemic of social isolation, of loneliness, and we're progressively recognizing how destructive that is to our health. What we're starting to notice, um, I think, is that with the reintroduction, the deliberate reintroduction of those more intimate, more vulnerable, more authentic experiences the quality of our lives improved dramatically. And that's not because vulnerability and authenticity and deep, intimate connection is something you have to experience all the time. But in the space where we have, for years or decades, or perhaps our entire adult lives, 
completely abandon that in favor of spring and summer kind of modes of being of outward looking of novelty of tons of people on social media or you know big parties or whatever but it's a recalibration that has to occur there so it's not saying those summer behaviors are wrong or problematic it's saying all in their correct time and we have to have a oscillation to momentarily to the other pole to recover from to rebalance that and then we start to have this natural I'm moving my hands right now no one can see them um, but we have this <laughs> natural kind of pendulum effect between the two extremes yeah. and um, we just need to recalibrate that such that each day literal season and season of our life can occur in this natural oscillation and one of the things I like about this concept as well is this is a place when you're going inward, when you're deliberately contracting, this is where you can dream and this is where you can create. And to your point, you can have gratitude for what is right now. And then you can start, you have the time and the space to start, you know, bringing things to life. Like your creation always comes from within. It's always mm -hmm. birthed from within your body. But if you are always sourcing you know, the dopamine and the, and the adrenaline exogenously, you're never going to have that time to just be still and to think and to, and, you know, we always say this with our kids, you know, to let them get bored right. so that they can have that imaginative totally. creative process happen. And I think that that's very similar to what the idea and the feeling around this contraction in wintertime is allow for that quiet stillness. And in that stillness, there can be you know, beautiful so things arise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, life. yeah, I, I think about it in the, in the relationship between creation and consumption, yes. you know, and, and obviously the consumptive time is that spring and summer. It's consumption of stimulation of all sorts. It is the, you know, it is the things that generate these sort of dopamine adrenaline responses. Um, and that's good and that's normal, right? Dopamine drives us towards things, to be curious, to be brave, to be exploratory, to be engaged with the world in a really rich and curious way. And that's a really good thing. And we also need to kind of take some of those ideas and principles and experiences and internalize them and metabolize them and process them such that we have the opportunity to bring something forward back into the world. We can create ourselves. Yes. And I love what you said about dreaming because the symbolic and literal winters are the times for dreaming because winter of course is nighttime is sleep. So we literally dream each night. Mm. We also have the winter dreaming of maximal contraction of introspection of looking backward and assessing, you know, where have I come from? What happened in this in the past time, these past seasons and what do I want to go into this next spring? And that's true on the annual timeline. And I think if we can wax a little bit philosophical here for a minute, that's also an opportunity as we go into the winter of our lives, because so much, you know, we think about getting older as dark and dismal and negative and terrifying and sad. And really, I like to think of it. And I've, I've in my mind, I've reframed it as an opportunity to dream something beautiful for the future. And hopefully if I've done each of the phases of, summer's hard work and contribution and winter's connection and community contribution and leaving a legacy by the time I get to the winter there's this beautiful experience of dreaming something beautiful and being able to let go and let the next generation take that into mm -hmm. their spring into that into the next time and that's how I think about leaving a better world for my son he's he'll be seven at the end of this month 
And it doesn't terrify me to think about getting older and eventually dying. It is the opportunity to look back and say, I did good work and I did it well and I'm at peace. And I think there's a, there's a chance for us as we go forward in our years and decades to reframe that, um, to not say, oh, I haven't done enough. I, I'm terrified of dying. And there's all of this, um, you know, complexity culturally around death, because if you come from certain religious traditions, death is the time when you could, when things could get a lot worse for you. <laughs> you could have a really terrifying, you know, painful, eternal experience. And I don't believe that. So to me, death is an opportunity to, to complete a cycle. And um, that I can look back on that. Um, I hope I can look back on that time and say, I've done each of those things well. Um, but that, that has to, that takes place as a result of being present to what's going on all along the way. And if you look at the top five regrets of the dying, most of them have to do with connections and relationships and choices made where we, you know, where we you know, don't work as much or work as hard as we did so we can be more present and more engaged with what's going on around us. So I'm encouraging everyone to immerse themselves fully in the season that they're actually in on whichever of the fractal timelines, you know, we're talking about and just to do that and to do it all the way. And then to move on in the time when your body will intuitively tell you, which is what you experienced. You, you described of like, I'm noticing I'm thinking more about legacy in the future and how can I contribute? Like that's what arises spontaneously yes. when we listen to what's in us. And I want to empower people to do that. So let's talk a little bit about pivots because in order to be able to fully complete a season, we also need to be able to move from the summer to the fall, from the winter to the spring. And you talk about this summer to fall pivot as being one of the most difficult for us. And you've touched on some of the, uh, the thoughts and the through lines already, but why do you think these pivots are so hard for us to make? Yeah, it's, it's a... I don't have a perfect answer on that, but I'll give you my best shot. Mm. Um, and, and I think about, you know, so much, of, so much of what we do as humans is biochemically, neurologically directed and motivated, right? So we know a lot about the neurochemistry of reward pathways, and we know a lot about the addictive components of the stress response. And we see it everywhere, all over the place. We see... Um, reward-driven behaviors that often done to access end up in tremendously painful and destructive circumstances. But that's not necessarily true in a kind of balanced oscillatory system. So, you know, in the world, and if you can think about the very ancient, let's say two or three million years ago, of the very ancient world, if human beings didn't have the motivation and the energy and the drive to expand and explore the world and to seek novelty and to seek stimulation, they would stay in a very small area and they would starve to death. They would die. Yeah. They would die. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so biochemically um, from a sort of motivational standpoint, what gives us the desi- the spontaneous desire and the energetic metabolic neurological capacity to go out into this risky, scary, unknown world and to survive in that space is the sequence of dopamine and adrenaline and cortisol. And what I find fascinating is that, like neurolo- or biochemically rather, dopamine is made into noradrenaline and adrenaline. Like it's a biochemical sequence. And I just think that's crazy. Like 
like this is the, you know, these patterns occur on all of these different timelines, even at the biochemical sort of, this is how it's made in the order it's made in. So um, those kind of sort of uh, symbolic markers for spring and summer for expansion, that's what got us to go out and explore and to learn and to grow and to expand and to spread all over the world and eventually to become the sort of smartest if you if you want to use that word species dominant yeah dominant i think yeah. is perhaps a more yeah. accurate descriptor there um and that's fine and in the world where we were beholden to all of the natural cycles the light dark cycle the migration of animals the temperature fluxes um all of these things we didn't have the opportunity to you know have light all the time because we didn't have artificial light then we didn't have the opportunity to consume refined sugars all the time because we didn't have access to it year round or at all for that matter. So what we did when we started creating these things and we started controlling our environment is we started giving ourselves access to the very rewarding stimuli, whether it is bright light or it is sugar or it is sex or whatever. We gave ourselves access to this in ways that we never have historically. So previously the environment regulated us because we were just part of the environment and as soon as we kind of went through that kind of great separation and we started taking control of the environment we then pandered to our expansive stimulating rewarding neurochemicals and totally reward and totally lost track of the other ones and so on the contractive side of things we have um serotonin and melatonin, which again are biochemically linked. Serotonin is transformed into melatonin. Um, and that serotonin is well known for its experience of connection and community and belonging and of, at its maximal way, sort of oneness with all things. Um, but it is leadership and contribution and mentoring and legacy and the sense of belonging. Like there is all of these things that are so lacking in the modern world. And so we both love and are addicted to dopamine and adrenaline and also yearn for the, ex the fall belonging experience that's symbolized by serotonin that then leads us into this deep restorative sleep and winter mode that's symbolized by melatonin. So I've kind of rambled there. I'm not sure if I answered your question or not, no, but the pivot, the yeah, pivot really is, is tearing ourselves away from the reward of the stress addiction and of the dopamine in order to consciously, deliberately move into a contraction mode because that we'd never had to make that a conscious decision before because that's just what happened in the environment. And now we've taken control of the environment and now we have to make that a deliberate decision in the same way that we made it a deliberate decision to control our food supply or create artificial light or automate things or become sedentary. These are decisions that we say consciously, we made as a species collectively. Um, that we now have to recognize as going off course and out of balance and recalibrate by deliberately saying we need to go into a contraction phase on these different timelines. And it's so profound because you're talking about this on a global level, but also on an individual level. I've seen this in clinic. You've seen this in clinic where the sympathetic tone or the sympathetic dominance, people are, as you said, addicted to the stress or addicted to the busy. They're addicted to the frenetic. And they, over time, to really back up this theory that you've proposed, we lose the ability. I've seen it time and time again where we lose the ability to take the foot off the proverbial 
gas pedal and to break and to just stop. People just want to go, go, go. And then we see yeah. chronic fatigue and we see chronic burnout. We see insulin resistance. We see metabolic, all these things that follow from living this adrenaline charged life with no, with no recourse. And I like, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having to jack yourself up with adrenaline or dopamine that leads into it, but it is absolutely to point, you need to come down from that and heal. It's like, it's like the nagging low back injury that never mm -hmm. goes away. You know, you're going to develop these antalgic compensatory patterns and you're never getting to source. I love it when you use the words like antalgic and compensatory. <laughs> I don't get enough of those in my regular everyday life. So <laughs> I miss my clinical realm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that these things come at a cost on every level, on the yeah. sort of biochemical cellular level, on the hormonal neurochemical level, on the sort of um, experience level, right? Because all of this only matters as far as I can tell, because it directly affects the quality of our human experience. Yeah. And if we are in chronic pain, we have chronic fatigue, we have uh, insomnia, anxiety, depression, uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies, we are addicted to the stress, we can't tolerate any boredom, we have, you know, like all of these things that are so common in modern society, it corrodes the quality of our experience. And so then we have attention directed at the unpleasant, sort of the discomfort of all of those experiences, which takes our attention away from what we're actually doing in life, from our mm -hmm. own individual internal experience. So it corrodes our ability to access our own intuition, our own kind of bodily sense, and it drags attention and um, sort of misallocates cognitive resources away from people around us. So we have less to contribute to our friends and family and partners and communities. So in a way, this would be a, this would be one of those like nice, neat and tidy, um, you know, TV ready snippets, but like in a way, this is the way to heal the world mm -hmm. because it is the opportunity for each individual person to heal and recover themselves. And that has a profound domino effect to people around them to on the on the community level and we see this with and i'll use the whole 30s example i mean we millions of people have done the whole 30 program and have been able to have profound transformations in their health in their psychological state in the quality of their relationships and it spills over into taking on new projects and more confidence at work and going back and picking up a hobby that you've forgotten about and leaving an unhealthy relationship. Like there's all of these downstream benefits that occur just within one person. And then it's a family and then it's a group of friends and then it's a small community and then it's everything from there. So I, I'm, my style is not to sensationalize. And yet I can't help but say these ideas could heal the world. So let's talk about some fall behaviors. Let's try to help some of the listeners out who bring it back saying, down to earth. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah. So let's say like they they're like, you know what? I'm probably stuck in summer, like Dallas is saying. What would be some things that we can do to in, to help with that pivot, to help with that shift? And we can talk about this in terms of social, we can talk about this in terms of sleep, in terms of movement, in terms of nutrition. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and so and so to your point, I've I've um I have clustered behaviors around health in the book around food around the light dark cycle which is easier to say sleep but it's really more than sleep it is our exposure to light and dark in balance in oscillation yeah. um, which includes sleep but it's not limited to there's movement which again is more than just exercise but includes exercise it also includes 
sleeping positions and movement throughout the course of the day and different types of metabolic stimuli. And then there's the connection component and the connection component is broken up into four sort of subcomponents of connection to self, connection to place, uh, that's sort of where I'm from, where I belong, connection to Mother Earth. There is connection to others, which obviously addresses the sort of social isolation, loneliness piece of it. And there's connection to this larger sense of purpose. Um, and I think this is kind of where Maslow's hierarchy of needs comes back in um, because that sort of transcendence of self and contribution to self is one of the greatest predictors of life satisfaction. So if we're looking at arriving at the end of our life, very satisfied with the way we've lived, um, we have to think about what is the life purpose? What are we contributing to this larger than ourselves? So fall behaviors then, a lot of them are, take, to use your analogy, taking, taking our feet off the gas. And it doesn't mean stomping hard on the brake and screeching to a stop on the side of the highway. It means taking your feet off the gas and the sensation that I often think of at the end of the summertime is a feeling like the temperature starts to shift a little bit, the light looking different and the recognition, like the days are getting a little bit shorter. Kids are going back to school. Like the world starts to feel a bit different. And that kind of moment is the symbolic experience of what we could experience each day coming home to our place, the sort of contraction of coming home. We could experience it each year in the contraction of the beginning of fall. And we can experience what you and I have already just, just talked about as the shift towards what happens in as we're moving into the fall of our lives sometime in our 40s. So that sort of more concretely looks like in the realm of food, um, continuing to eat primarily what is available to you locally. And the great thing about fall is that there's this tremendous bounty of food. No matter where you live in the world, fall is a great time to eat because there's an enormous variety. And there is a richness and sort of the harvest celebrations that occur in the fall address that, right? We have this abundance. And when we can be present to the abundance, there is that spontaneous experience of gratitude. And in the US and Canada, that's, that is symbolized by the Thanksgiving celebration, right? So we already have these cultural things that are in place to address what is intuitively in all of us already. And um, so Thanksgiving is such a great symbol for what fall should feel like. So the food then is this tremendous wide range of what's available in the fall. And that everything that is everything from kind of meat and seafood and eggs to, you know, squashes to fruit to vegetables, all sorts like fall is a wonderful time to be eating. On the um, sleep side, what it means is we start to go to bed earlier. We start to go, we start to move into darkness earlier. So it's not just going to bed earlier. So we get more hours of sleep. It is, purposely, deliberately dimming the lights earlier, avoiding the blue light that's so disruptive to our secretion of melatonin, which allows us to get into that deep restorative sleep later in the evening. Um, it is um, sort of movement-wise, it is changing from being outside all the time, going on long hikes, going out to the lake, swimming, going to the beach, you know, going to the park, like the sort of big outdoor stuff for many hours a day and just sort of settling. It's doing some cleaning at home and you're still physically active, but it's not quite so extreme. Um, and there's a little more kind of emphasis on um, functional movement and particularly intensity. Like it's, you know, if you're doing workout in the garden or out in the yard, it's lifting and carrying heavier stuff instead of long day hikes. So it's a movement from 
um, low intensity, long duration patterns, which are summer patterns to somewhat more intensity and a little more kind of structural load, which addresses the different metabolic patterns and also different kind of structural stimuli. And then the connection piece, which we talked briefly about already is purposely recognizing that the fun, stressful, and I say stressful, not in a negative way, but just stimulating um, environment of summer socializing, where there's lots of people, we've got a thousand Facebook friends, and as we're talking to people on Instagram, we have this very large number of relatively superficial relationships that we maintain, and we start to distance ourselves a bit from that, and we start to turn towards the people that matter most to us, um, our anchor connections, I call it in the book. Um, so these are, this is a contraction. It is catching up with old friends and you know, extended family that we haven't seen because we've been busy on road trips and doing summertime stuff, it's reconnecting with those people. So the entire cultural movement, and Brene Brown is such a wonderful leader in this space of talking about vulnerability and authenticity and profound, powerful connection, that on a cultural level, I see as a, as a response to the paucity of that in our chronic summer society. And we're trying to say, wow, we really need these things and the strong research behind it and the strong personal experience behind it on thousands, millions of people where we can say, Oh, it feels so much better when I address these powerful connections um, in a way that I've often neglected for years. So all of those shifts all start to feel more like the settling, coming home, belonging community contribution kind of experience of fall. Um, but it has to be deliberate because, because eating less, you know, uh, sugary foods, particularly, you know, healthy fruits in the summertime um, and moving away from that in the fall, um, deliberately dimming the lights earlier and perhaps going to bed earlier, um, purposely moving towards authenticity and vulnerability in fewer connections and forsaking some of the more superficial connections. All of those things are less fun, so to speak, right? Spring and summer is fun. It's easy to do. It's, it's very rewarding. It's easy to do. And our kind of our whole civilization is built around that feeling of fun. But there is, and I, I talk about the difference between cravings and longings. And the cravings for the stimulating dopamine and adrenaline-driven spring and summer experiences, those are easy to follow. Those are, they come right to the surface. They pop up in moments. Um, but the deeper longings, the yearnings for something more, is what draws us into community and connection and contribution and towards questions like, how do I want to give back? What is my legacy going to be? And that leads us into that fall experience. Um, so if you have the desire for something, the thought being drawn towards something, an easy question is, is this a craving for stimulation and expansion? Or is this a deeper yearning for settling, slowing down and reconnection or belonging? Mm-hmm. It's almost like how athletes will perform in the summer and then they start to make that shift in the fall to more base building. Absolutely. So they're starting to maybe lift heavier weights. Uh, there's higher intent. Maybe there's some more higher intensity. They're trying to put on muscle. Uh, they're trying to gain muscle power, increase their FTP, whatever it is that they're, whatever, mm-hmm. they're, whatever they're chasing. And I often find in, at the end of summer, I feel like my hair is like out to here, you know, <laughs> you know like my, you can't see me if you're a listener, but my, you know, I have like this big lion's mane of hair and I'm kind of frazzled. So yeah. I often forget 
what I find through summers, I often forget to meditate. And I know Emily Fletcher has been a guest on our podcast before, so I'm sorry, Emily, but I do forget to meditate in the summer. But I pick it up, I tend to pick it up in the fall Mm -hmm. and it deepens through the winter. Like I get really into my meditation through the winter time. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Um, yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to maybe, so we've talked about fall. Let's move into winter. And I'm kind of one of those weirdos that really like, there's parts of winter I just cherish, like the yeah. big chunky blankets and the chili and the fireplace. And I just, there's parts of it I just absolutely adore. So let's maybe think about, you know, in the context of the four pillars, winter behavior that a family might want to engage in, uh, movement, how that changes. Mm-hmm. And then I want to kind of go on a little geeky magic carpet ride with you and talk about sleep because that's a Great. really big pillar for you. So let's talk about winter Absolutely. and then we'll go, to, we'll go to sleep. Yeah, uh, winter is a conceptual extension of fall, right? So it is sort of the second part of the contraction phase. So it's a more kind of extreme version. So in the same way as summer is the most expanded part of the expansion phase, winter is the most contracted version of the contraction phase. So it is going farther in the direction you're moving, you're already moving in during the fall season. So it is um, even more physical and emotional contraction of looking much more inward and much more only at the you know, very immediate circle of people around you. And if you think about it on a 24 hour cycle, um, you think about waking up in the morning and being excited. To, let's say you're camping or you're out, you know, you're doing a day trip to the lake. Um, in the morning, it's like exciting. Like, what are we going to do today? What all, all these opportunities? This like the world is our oyster. And there is this sort of excitement and draw towards that. Then there is the midday experience of going out and doing the thing and maybe working hard and maybe going on a long hike or going swimming. And there's sort of that like stressful, stimulating, fun component of midday. Then there is the afternoon into evening when we are slowing down and we are feeling a sense of like, oh, I'm coming back to camp, I'm coming back home and I'm settling and I'm physically contracting and I'm getting closer to the people that, are, that I care about that are there with me. And then I'm moving into this very deeply contracted. And you think about, you know, kind of sitting around a campfire with half a dozen friends or family members, like you can only see 20 feet away, if that, like the world's very, very small when it's, when the light is dim. And that's exactly the experience you should be having in the winter time is the world's very, very small when the light is dim. And that can occur at the end of each day in the winter. That should be a very um, palpable experience during the day, you know, during each day. And then that is even amplified even more in the winter time. So there is this sensation of being home, um, connecting with those people that are the most that are your 
closest inner circle. And so for families that might look like uh, lighting candles over dinner and having dim light and having this very intimate, safe, connective experience, um, you know, just over dinner. It doesn't have to be anything. You don't have to cook an amazing 12 course dinner. You can just have your regular old dinner in this much more intimate experience. And my dear friend, Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, um, told me a while ago that he spontaneously started doing this with his family several years ago. In the wintertime, they would have candlelight dinners. And he said it radically changed the way they interacted as a family. They've got two kids. And they said that way that the demeanor of the kids started to shift, such that they had much more meaningful, connective, very present experiences with their children, simply as a function of changing the light during dinner. So it, it automatically directs us here, and we're not looking outside, we're not looking at our screens, we're being present to what's there, and deeply grateful for that experience. So we also change what we eat, right? So the winter is, again, the more extreme version of fall. And if you live somewhere that has four distinct seasons and has farmer's markets, often the farmer's markets close altogether because there's not really much in the way of fresh food growing in the winter, or it's very limited. And so winter looks a lot like complete protein sources, um, often from, you know, meat and seafood and eggs or dense, you know, plant-based protein sources, combined with what vegetables um, and to a lesser extent fruit keep well. So it is the like starchy root vegetables and squashes and maybe some fruit like apples that tends to keep well for long periods of time. But the macronutrient ratio tends to skew dramatically towards protein and fat and really away from carbohydrate. And so what happens is we naturally lean towards a more low carb, high fat, in this case, often insulin sensitizing kind of diet, simply by virtue of eating what's available to us locally. And so we have this enhanced sense of connection to place because we're tuned into what's available locally. And we have the internal metabolic benefits of shifting our diets. And we have the intuitive sort of alignment of eating foods that feel right because short rib stew feels really right in January and feels really, really wrong in July. Yes, that is really right. True. It doesn't like nobody wants to do it. And, and it feels yeah. really strange. Conversely, it feels really strange to eat a strawberry spring green feta cheese salad in January. It just, right. it feels right in April, but not in the dead of winter. So we have these things that we already can intuitively notice like, Oh, that's kind of weird. That doesn't seem quite right. And I want to bring more of things of more of those things forward for people. So then winter, to your point about being sort of a phase of hypertrophy of um, kind of building, the really awesome thing is that when we get into the space where we start to listen, we start to notice these patterns, what we see is a uh, low carb, high fat, protein rich diet combined with uh, good intense strength building or strength and power building exercise combined with tons of sleep in the winter combined with profound social connections is a deeply restorative environment. Like that is a place where people get stronger, feel better, have more energy, dream deeply, feel restored, repair their metabolic dysregulations, et cetera. Like it's a, it's a total healing environment. And so when I look at some of the recent trends in society, whether it is a movement away from the, um, long, slow distance, chronic cardio kind of thing towards more of a high intensity interval training, CrossFit kind of model, more emphasis on, um, you know, powerlifting, weightlifting, like that kind of stuff. Like to me, that is unconsciously addressing the chronic summer mode of movement and moving as a society and cultural trends into a more of a restorative healing winter mode. 
And the thing that I often say that most people don't like is I was like, that's a really great shift for a time. And so in the same way that we often make the mistake of saying, oh, I moved from this high carb, low fat diet that didn't do very well for us in this 1970s and 80s and 90s, and we've moved into a low carb, high fat, or even ketogenic approach. I'm like, that's a really great, deeply restorative therapeutic mode for a time. And we often make the mistake of thinking because something works really well for us in a short-term adaptation that somehow that, that, that adaptation will continue and the benefits will continue indefinitely. And I think what, what happens is that with a lot of any of these approaches, any of these shifts, whether it is going to be, you know, to becoming a vegan, whether it is um, taking on a high-intensity interval training, a ketogenic diet, it doesn't really matter. We have adaptations to those things and they work, so to speak, for a time, and then six months, a year, two years, three years goes by, and they don't quite work as well, and we either have to tighten the screws and do it more extreme, or we have to abandon and go a totally different direction. And I'm arguing that if we learn to follow the intuitions that are in us, they will lead us from these different poles into the next phases of our lives, all of which can be profoundly health-promoting. Yeah, and there's so there's diet, I think diet wars have been going on for way before you and I were born and they will For continue sure. until we are gone. But the idea of the, we, we see this with people who start weight training mm -hmm. and they get all of these benefits, all these crazy strength gains right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. But then those gains begin to attenuate. They don't, you cannot make the same kind of gains um, indefinitely in, in the movement realm or in the mm -hmm. movement silo. And the same is true, you know, just to back up what you're saying, if you, any, well, I mean, I'll just say anything that's not the standard American diet, you are going to see an improvement in your physiology. <laughs> right. Anything that's is better. Anything, anything is better than yeah. that. But, and we see this with vegans, we see this with any, any, any mm -hmm. sort of, you know, the ketogenic diet, anything where you make incredible gains initially, and then they start to plateau and you mm -hmm. think, well, it must, it must be the diet. I'll just get onto the next thing. Right. And then this, you get this novice effect. You start, you see that thing and then it you, like, oh, well, this must be the new thing. Cause I'm feeling much better. Right. And then again, the results begin to attenuate and then, and so the cycle propagates itself. I mean, I'll argue and, and virtually, I will offend virtually everyone who has some sort of um, dietary dogma as part of their worldview when I say this, but I'll argue that um, a low carb, high fat or ketogenic approach is very winter-like, that a plant-based, higher carbohydrate, higher plant matter, lower fat diet is very summer-like, and that a Mediterranean diet or a sort of like what I'll call a healthy paleo diet, not the kind that like just recreates the low nutrient processed standard American diet, but like paleo a paleo cookie, well, not paleo cookies, not paleo cookies. No, I mean, a paleo, I say paleo just as such a shorthand, but what I described yeah. and it starts with food, which is basically yes. a wide range of plants and animals that address all of your macronutrient and micronutrient needs in moderate proportions. Um, that is, you know, that whether it's a Mediterranean or paleo, whatever kind of is that midpoint between, you know, that spring and fall. So that really, all of the proponents of these different dietary approaches are correct and all of the proponents of these dietary approaches are incorrect because the mistake they make is saying this is the way everyone should eat all the time and i'm like actually this is a mistake that everyone should eat some of the time and your opponent over there who you vehemently disagree with is also correct for a time and i think there's an opportunity here to recognize to your point we do have adaptations to all of these dietary approaches that are positive. It's one of the reasons why nutrition research is so complex and confusing and confounding because if you're introducing a wide range of 
uh, carbohydrate-rich plant foods into your diet from the standard American diet or from any other diet, things are going to get better for a while. If you're severely restricting carbohydrate and providing lots of healthy fats and adequate dietary protein, you're going to get better for a while. And I think that there's a beautiful opportunity here to like set aside all of the dietary dogma and perhaps have a ceasefire in the, in the diet wars because I believe all of these approaches are appropriate and are even beneficial for a while. And I think um, we allocate a lot of energy into trying to prove ourselves and our people on our team right when really what a lot of us have experienced, if you look back over the course of your life and you've done a lot of different sort of dietary approaches, many, if not most of them, did actually help you in some way. And so I'm saying, okay, let's continue to basically leverage the novice effect that you reference on an ongoing basis instead of trying to squeeze out a few more single digit percentage points going down the same road. Right. Let's come back to sleep for a moment. Yeah. Because we were talking about winter. We were talking about the, the days are shorter. The amount of light that we're exposed to is not as much as compared to spring or summer. And you know, at least in Toronto where I am, it gets dark at five. It gets dark at five in the afternoon. So I'm, uh, you know, kind of in the dead of winter. Both of my parents are from greater Toronto. So I'm well familiar with that. Okay. So let's talk about sleep. And I love the reframe in the book around melatonin because you mm -hmm. don't talk about melatonin as the initiator of sleep, which is what we all think about. Right. Uh, you talk about it uh, almost the hormone of darkness, I think, is what, how you mm -hmm. refer to it. So it almost sounds like a Star Wars character, which I, I love because I'm a Star <laughs> totally. Wars geek, right? Nice. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the dance, the coordinated dance that happens in order to have melatonin secreting at the appropriate level, mm -hmm. at the appropriate time. Let, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So melatonin is secreted in the absence of light. So we have these um, intrinsic circadian clocks in most of our cells, and we have this um, beautiful orchestration in largely the central nervous system where we have light exposure early in the day combined with those intrinsic circadian clocks that starts the process of waking up and becoming alert and kind of gets us on track so that through midday and kind of a time when we're actually doing and interacting with the world, we are present and attentive and functional. And as the sun goes down, whichever, whatever time of day that is. Um, and as we should be having less and less light over time, the relative reduction of light brightness, in particular, the blue wavelengths, the, the reduction and eventual elimination of that altogether is what allows the circadian clocks um, to secrete melatonin to prepare us for sleep. So it's not, we fall asleep and then we get melatonin we optimally should have melatonin that leads us naturally into this deep restorative sleep. And we have that totally backwards in the modern world because we are exposed to light, often rather bright light, including the blue wavelengths that prevent the secretion of melatonin. And we are exposed to that often right up until literally we turn the lights up and expect to go right to sleep, but we don't have a melatonin pulse for another half an hour, an hour, two hours going into that time period which means the coordination between the time we expect to go to sleep and the time when we actually have melatonin leading us into that deep restorative sleep, there's a mismatch, there's a, there's a discoordination there. So what we need to do then is we need to reformulate the way we experience our evenings after dark that look more like sitting around the campfire with the people we care about most. 
So it's the social experience, but it's also just the light from a purely um, biochemical experience. It is removing um, blue light. We're, many people now are familiar. If you've got to sleep in a cool, dark room, you've got to block the, you know, block the blue light at least a couple hours before bed. And the reason for that is because blue light sends the message that it is blue sky, midday, you need to be alert. You have, you know, you have the sort of all the stress hormones of midday or of summertime um, going. And so you have um, cortisol, which won't allow melatonin to do its job. Um, present when you have blue light. And we know this, we're learning this, more people are becoming aware of this. And so I'm arguing for reformulating our evenings such that we do just naturally dim the lights. We avoid the blue light altogether. And, you know, lots of people will use blue blocking glasses. I think that's a really only kind of part way solution because it, it only addresses a, a narrow range of, of light and it totally ignores all the other sort of psychosocial experiential components, which are also part of winding down. So I encourage people to, you know, and this is where winter, you know, fall into winter, dimming the lights, eating dinner by candlelight could be applied each evening because it's the same thing of dimming the lights and becoming into that more safe, intimate space with people you trust. It's the same pattern. It's the same sequence. Um, so I think that that really we have the the opportunity to allow a much more natural um, circadian rhythm, a much more natural biological rhythm there, um, by letting your body work the way it was designed to work. And we have to get away from the stimulating effects of light in order to let melatonin do its job. And I think the what I enjoy, one of the things I enjoyed about the book was that you were talking about sleep and nutrition and movement and social, even though they were distinct, there were four distinct silos, they all really interact and, and mesh with each other. So you're talking about these clocks that we have, or these, you know, central clocks uh, in the brain that are detecting light, mm-hmm. but that also parses with the peripheral clocks that we have as well. So if you are, I mean, even if you, let's assume that someone is following the recommendations that you outline in the book and they're eating by candlelight and they are attuning to the light from the exterior. If you have now a big meal at seven or eight for dinner time, mm-hmm. and this is the biggest bolus of of energy that you're taking in, now your liver is going to be like, hey, we have all this energy now. Let's, you know, we got to... Totally. There's going to be this, dis- this this dissonance almost between the brain and the and the periphery. So can you can you speak to that a little bit in terms of the- yeah, I love I, I love that question because it allows me to kind of highlight the interconnectedness of all of these different factors. Um, and I like I also like simple heuristics. So the you know the the shortcut answer of you know what do I eat at different times of the year? I'm like, well, you eat what is produced locally and seasonally and available at your farmer's market. It's the simplest, easiest way to do it. It's a collection of meat and vegetables that's available. You know, in the realm of light and in the realm of overlapping food and light, what I what I will often say is um, a really ideal way to coordinate your circadian clock with your digestive tract is to only eat during the daylight hours. And what that means is that during the summertime, we're pretty much available to eat anytime we're awake because it sometimes suns up at five or six in the morning and it's not dark till nine or 10 at night. And so we have this enormous feeding window opportunity. And I think that's totally fine when you restrict that to the summer. The problem is in the chronic summer mode of modernity, we don't restrict that to just summer. We do that year round. And so some of the metabolically deranging impacts come from this enormous feeding window 
in bright light year round for decades on end. The flip side of that is that when we go into this really deep contract, deeply contracted winter, uh, there is a much narrower feeding window because there's so many fewer daylight hours. So what that introduces kind of naturally is um, a compressed feeding window, which starts to look a little bit like an intermittent fasting protocol where you have extended periods of time where you're not eating. Um, and it doesn't have to be a complex, time-dependent, quantified, rigid system. It can simply be, I only eat when the sun's out. And what that means is um, you don't, you, you solve the conundrum that you just described of having a huge bolus of nutrients coming in two or three or four hours after the sun goes down. Because what happens if you only eat during daylight hours, which is what we would have done primarily as hunter-gatherers, we would have hunted and foraged during the daytime and eaten during those daylight hours and perhaps around the fire for a couple hours after dark, but it's really limited to the daylight hours. There was no such thing as going to the pantry foraging at 11 p.m. for a snack before bed. That never existed. Um, so this, there is this really elegant solution to just eat when it's light outside or within kind of a narrow window with the dim light in, in combination um, after the sun goes down and that solves all of those mismatch problems. I love that. In the book you talk about, you share a story of a girl named or a woman named Jill. Mm -hmm. And everyone, you know, calls her a badass. She has this rocking body. She's, you know, doing double duty at the gym. She's, you know, on her phone at night catching up with friends and completely resisted. I think she had come in for a consultation with you and she was like, just tell me what carbs I need to, you know, totally. whatever it was that she was trying to do uh, to lose a little bit of weight and would not address sleep with you. Was right. very resistant to this idea of addressing her sleep as a way to restore and heal. And it's an interesting thing that I have bumped up against as well as a clinician where people tend, it, it, I think it's a cultural thing where people wear sleep deprivation as a badge of honor. A hundred percent. You know, and the your book is coming out next week. So it's not lost on me that the time is changing. Uh, so it's coming out March the 10th. This episode, we're making sure that it's coming out March the 9th. So our episodes drop on Monday. Perfect. But that's going to be the weekend where the time changes and mm -hmm. we're all going to be losing an hour of sleep. So in terms for people that live in, and I, I'm a, you know, I won't get into the politics of why I don't believe that the time should change at all. But, you know, for, for those of us that lose, that are about to lose an hour of sleep, how do we, well, maybe the question is, how do we get people focused on sleep? Because I always say, listen, before you give me any money, if you want to lose, if you want to come and work with me, I want you to, I want you to sleep for eight hours a day for seven mm -hmm. days. And then you see how much weight you're going to lose. Cause that's often the missing for sure piece with people. And they, there's so much resistance. Why do you think that that is with sleep? What is it about sleep deprivation, pulling on yeah. lighters and you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, that kind of mentality that we have, where does that come from and what can we do to get around? I think it's a super good question. Um, I think it's a long-term product sort of iterating over many generations, but I think it's a long-term product of this addiction to stress. So anytime I, and, and, and I could say to Jill or anybody else who was a, a hard training athlete who was very focused on performance and body composition and like sort of wringing out the sponge as tightly as possible. Um, it's just as challenging to get people who are compulsive exercisers to exercise less because it's the same patterns. It's, it's stress addiction. 
And so light and busyness and movement and being stimulated is absolutely a thousand percent addicting. It's what we talk about in the public conversation now with social media and the way the apps and platforms are designed to be addicting. You know, you think about if you could sort of zoom out from society or, and, and actually just kind of think of the human species globally, when you think about something like Facebook that has over half of the world, I think that's, if that number's right, it's some astronomical mind blowing number of people participating in a platform that's happened within a couple of decades, like that kind of shift on a global scale with literally billions of people happens only for profoundly powerful reasons. Like we've never had things change in human society that quickly. Nothing's ever happened in 10 or 20 years on that scale. We think about, you know, the artificial light or the printing press or the agriculture. Like it took hundreds or thousands of years to spread around the world. Mm-hmm. And now we have billions of people engaging with the same patterns of behavior very rapidly. It's because we are abusing those highly rewarding addictive pathways. So with sleep, it's the same thing. It is, we've created a culture of, oh, and this is, the, this is the same culture of I'm a badass athlete. We socially reward people who are effectively breaking themselves down, but we tell them, you're awesome, you're a badass. Uh, you know, I, I see what your body comp is. I see what your performance is at the gym. I see what your athletic performance is and you're amazing. And we basically, you know, if you're a heroin addict, there aren't a lot of people who are like, you're amazing, keep on doing what you're doing. (laughs) But if you're chronically sleep restricted, or if you are, you know, an exercise addict, we tell people this is really good. So we socially reward them, which is one of the reasons why it's really difficult to extricate that, you know, to extricate ourselves from that. Because basically, I'm saying to an addict, stop using the thing. And they're like, but everyone around me tells it's great. And I get patted on the back for exercising, so to speak, my addiction. Um, So helping people see that those destructive patterns are a direct result of of rewarding pathways, of addictive pathways. And one of the sort of um, little litmus tests I used to use with my consulting clients is I would ask them like, what is the food or behavior that you are most terrified or resistant to giving up? And they'll say cheese, mm. beer, wine, you know, uh, Instagram, uh, you know, whatever. And I'm like, that's your biggest problem. They just handed me the answer on a silver platter. The thing that we're most resistant to giving up is the thing that we have the tightest grip on from a sort of addictive standpoint. Nobody says, I can't deal with the idea of living without Brussels sprouts or without meditation or whatever. Rarely I hear meditation because people are like, that's my lifeline. Yeah. But most of the time it's these profoundly rewarding, addicting behaviors and ton like light stimulation is addictive in the same way that sugar is addictive. And in the ancient world, light came and went without our control and sugar came and went without our control. And then we were like, Oh, we should actually control those things and produce more of them. Um, we didn't take on sort of from a society civilization level, we didn't take on deeply nourishing parasympathetically stimulating things to do on a large scale. We took on things like coffee and tea and cacao and, um, you know, coca leaves that we then later transformed into cocaine. Like we took these things on that were deeply addicting. Yeah. And so the sleep challenge is, is hard because there's mixed messages. Society, we say hustle and grind and you're a badass for getting up at five to go for a lo- your long run. 
And what I'm saying is I actually don't find that to be healthy or inspiring. I find it to be a understandable, but actually sad um, illustration of the way we misunderstand how our bodies need to work. And that has to include an equal and opposite restoration for all of the hard work that we do. And we do shit tons. Can I say that? We do a lot of hard work in this <laughs> modern world um, more than we ever have in terms of stress and stimulation and effort. Um, and we have to have the corresponding way to balance that out. And I mentioned this in the book, we often will look at, um, research for contemporary primitive hunter gatherer tribes as a best guess for what we should do in the modern world. And I argue that that's only a half baked argument because we can, we can say, yes, all other things being equal, we could probably are, we could probably say what primitive tribes do is a good place for us to start or a good kind of pattern to inform our behavior, but all things are not equal. The stress and stimulation that we undergo in the modern world is radically different than what a hunter-gatherer tribe, either contemporary or ancient, would have ever accomplished. So I argue that we do need more sleep than we used to have as hunter-gatherers because we're taxing ourselves more heavily in the modern world than we ever did in the past. So we have to have an apples-to-apples, not an apples-to-oranges comparison. Right. And in that vein, with that orthorexic behavior, you never mm-hmm. see people who are addicted to Tai Chi. Like you no. don't see, but you see the soul cycle. I mean, not, I'm not knocking soul cycle, but you know, you go to, I have patients that are, will go to a spin class five times a week. Yeah. Uh, CrossFit's example. I, I, um, I used to operate a CrossFit gym um, in, my, in my past life. And um, I was critical of the excesses that I saw emerging in the community because early on in that community, um, it was short, hard, high intensity training done with functional movement patterns with lots of variety. And over time, it morphed into this beast that was longer things, higher intensity things, more often with less variety. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we lost our way here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that same thing is true. And you have and you have this really interesting juggernaut of a of a company in the fitness community now, which I explained fairly simply. It's a really effective exercise protocol that's profoundly stressful and addictive that really addresses our needs for community. Boom. There's CrossFit. Yeah. And that's not in any way to disparage that, but it's just an observation about the simple factors that really kind of came together to give us this, you know, this really profound um, shift in the fitness community in the last 10 or 15 years. So all of that to say, um, if we don't deliberately address the contractive, settling, restorative, parasympathetic, regenerative components, you know, you mentioned Tai Chi, meditation, if we don't directly, deliberately address those things, um, we're, we're going to run ourselves ragged, you know, and, and you think about, again, kind of going back to the ancient world, I don't believe, and no one really knows, but I don't believe that hunter-gatherers a million years ago practiced Tai Chi or meditation, but they probably sat next to the river and thought about life in a quiet, perhaps bored experience often. Well, that's effectively a mindfulness meditation practice. So we have to deliberately contrive this thing that we have lost the opportunity to do in the modern world because it moves so fast and we have to then recreate it structurally and say, I'm doing my meditation practice. But if you live outside in nature, you don't have to meditate because living outside in nature is meditation. 
And just building on that, I pulled this excerpt from your book. And with your permission, I'd like to read it because I think this bridges well to social connection. So in the case of intense or prolonged exercise, so the CrossFit or the Soul Cycle that we're talking about, the structural and metabolic stress triggers hormonal responses like adrenaline and cortisol, as well as the release of feel-good endorphins. For our hunter-gatherer ancestors, these endorphins help increase our physical pain tolerance, enabling us to uh, fight or flee from a dangerous predator or threat. But in the modern world, we've unconsciously repurposed these natural painkillers to manage other types of pain and stressors like loneliness, social rejection, financial pressure, feelings of inadequacy, and a deep connection with our family, friends, and romantic partners. This works because the brain circuits involved with the perception of physical pain also light up when we experience social rejection. Like holy truth bomb. Yeah, that's, that is the modern world. That is what we do, right? We find ways to salve the wounds of feeling inadequate, which is by definition a a summer feeling. I mentioned that earlier, right? This Mm -hmm. sensation of I need, I need to consume more or I need to be more of something. The, excruciating pain of never reaching the place where you feel enough, meaning never reaching the end of summer where you start to experience the false sense of presence and adequacy and abundance, that excruciating pain of never feeling like you're enough or you have enough um, really just, just eats away like acid into our human experience. And what I'm hoping is that, when we put some of these foundational building blocks in place that on their surface look like eating different food or exercising differently or turning lights out earlier or uh, having more profound conversations with our intimate partners or whatever on their surface, they look like, you know, fairly obvious tweaks that most people would say that sounds sensible and that sounds like a thing to do. But when we, when we view this as a system where we need to kind of coordinate all of these factors we also recognize there's an opportunity to heal so many of those deep wounds in moving from a space of inadequacy to not just adequacy, but true abundance. Because, if, because adequacy is not really a thing. It's not, I am not enough, or I am barely not quite enough. I'm just adequate. I'm abundant. I'm more than enough. And I have more than enough. And the fact that Um, you and I and listeners to this podcast are sitting consuming this information, these ideas, these words through some sort of digital device is momentarily in the here and now, in this exact moment, it's evidence that we have enough. And yes, you could say, well, I, I, I don't have very much money in my bank account or I'm, I'm, you know, but really when we get really granular with it and we say in the here and now, I have enough. And when you can feel that in your body, there's a profound settling parasympathetic response, a lot of which happens during deep meditation or self-compassion exercises or even just gratitude journaling. Um, So all of these things kind of get all tangled up and woven together. So people ask me like, what's your book about? I'm like, well, it's about health and wellness, but not really. It's really about using specific coordinated health behaviors and coordinate is really the key there because when we mismatch 
let's say we mismatch the modern standard American diet to what our bodies expect, which is a radically different thing. And we have that mismatch, things go horribly wrong. But similarly, when we mismatch a, um, let's say a winter type diet, like a ketogenic diet with a huge amount of glycolytic activity, we have a tremendous destruction to our metabolic and hormonal systems because we have a similar mismatch between different factors. So we're familiar with the idea of evolutionary mismatch, but I'm like, we also have to look at the mismatch between factors. And if we're trying to do intense weightlifting or powerlifting training and put ourselves in a hypertrophic phase while we're in a summer sleep restricted mode, it's not going to work well. Right. Um, so we have to coordinate all of these factors. And so I, I, I didn't write it in the book specifically, but the kind of nerdy way of saying it is like we have to synchronize, then periodize all of these factors. Yes. And when we talk about loneliness and social isolation, these are, as to your point, these are more summer like feelings, this feeling of being inadequate and the, you know, grounding with your intimate. Uh, you know, with a close intimate circle is more of a winter mm-hmm. activity. And I would add, and I think you've mentioned this in the book as well, getting off social media in the winter time, like restricting your access to the Instagrams and the Facebooks and the whatever other mm-hmm. mediums there are, because I think that that is also just a thief of your joy because you- 100%. You're looking at someone's highlight reel and you're like, well, my life isn't always like, look at her and look at him. Right. And, and then you just naturally, I think as a human, you sort of go there and you are, you, the idea of not being enough or just being okay, as you said, you know, is, is really reinforced. And I wanted, to, um, I wanted to ask you specifically in your own personal journey. So you talk about very openly and very honestly and transparently in the book about your divorce and how this was difficult for you and how this was a pivotal moment, you know, to use your terminology, it was really pivotal for you to be able to re-evaluate your relationships and what you wanted out of them. Can you share with me and, and my listeners, what did you gain from that experience and how did your social interactions change after that? Yeah, it's um, so I'll, I'll, I'll perhaps extend the vulnerability beyond what I wrote about in the book and, and say um, some of the insights that I end up writing about in the book are things that I learned by doing it horribly wrong post-divorce and not wrong in a moral sense, um, but wrong in an ineffectual sense, in a mismatch sense, because for a while post-divorce, I kept myself really busy. I had lots of friends, I traveled a lot, I distracted myself effectively in the same way as we use uh, social media and compulsive exercise uh, to distract ourselves from the pain of social isolation. I did pretty much that same thing. So it wasn't like I had this um, perfect epiphany post-divorce and everything fell into place and everything was wonderful. I hobbled along and bumbled along and got most of it wrong for most of the time and then sort of started to piece it together and start to move in a direction. But this was a multi-year process for me. This was not a boom, everything's fixed because now I know how to do it right. Mm -hmm. This was, um, wow, I'm, I've got amazing people in my life who love me, who are incredible and reliable and vulnerable and meaningful connections. And I'm still really lonely. And so much of that was the, was the progressive and ongoing till this day, ongoing awakening of my own to my own struggles to be deeply vulnerable and deeply authentic and deeply honest and really to 
crack open myself progressively more year upon year. And that process started years ago, but it continues to be ongoing for me. And I understand that from my own journey as there were so many years, and this goes all the way back to childhood, really, um, in my family, my family system was such that you didn't feel feelings and you certainly didn't express them, whether they were good or bad. You just didn't, you just did your own thing, but it was all internal. And as a child, and this is the experience I think of, of children who undergo sort of trauma by emotional neglect. Um, as a child, if you're not, if your experience is not validated by the people you're attached to, particularly your parents, um, and this is attachment theory stuff, but if that experience is not respected and valued and honored, you have this sense of shame just for feeling what you feel. And I had so much of that for so long that I'm still now experiencing and uncovering long held, very childlike experiences um, in response to really small triggers in the world, because I didn't learn how to do some of those like, sort of those childlike, then adolescent, then young adult experiences. So I'm going back and tying up loose ends from three and four decades ago. So <laughs> my process is ongoing too, um, in, a, in a very, in a very big way. But, but the principles now, I feel I've got a really strong grasp on the principles. And if I'm in a place where I'm not quite sure how to make it feel better, I go back to that template. And I say, what, what would I tell a consulting client in this space who tells me this story? And usually the answer becomes, becomes quite simple and quite obvious really quickly. Um, but I check myself against that template all the time um, in all realms of my life, including this sort of social connection piece. So yeah, I'm, I'm certainly a work in progress as well. I mean, and thank you so much for your honesty. I mean, we, we all are, I think that we are all just so scared to show up authentically as who we are for reasons, you know, whether it's childhood, you know, not feeling validated, as you said, the one thing I, 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 and I myself am also divorced. So I, I empathize with your journey because I have been there as well, but divorce is always good news. This is, this is the one thing I want. Um, this has been my own realization because mm -hmm. it means that two people figured out that this match wasn't working. Maybe it was one person or two. They made an adult decision to say, this isn't working for me. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but no good marriages end in divorce. Right. Well, and I'll frame it, you know, kind of going back to the sort of the dichotomy between being authentic and being attached. As children, we very often maintain attachment to our parental figures, typically, yes. but we maintain attachment often at the expense of authenticity. Yes. And the experience of maturation and differentiation, really becoming a full fledged adult is of choosing authenticity over attachment. And so what you're saying, I think, is that through the process of divorce, you're choosing your own truth and your own deeply held authenticity over attachment to someone you are obviously very attached to, you've spent years or decades with. Um, but that is representative of a mature, solid, secure, and growing person to be able to say, actually, my own thought, my authenticity, who I am as a person requires me to end this relationship, to sever this attachment. And I always deeply respect that, um, even when it's excruciating. Yes. I'm 
trying to work with uh, Nicole LaPerla, the holistic psychologist mm. who you nice. may, uh, to have her on the podcast. And she talks about this all the time, this idea of trading who we are for love. Yes. So we shape shift who we are in order to receive love from our parents um, so that we can, so that we can thrive. But it's the, in, in our being a self healer and reparenting ourselves where we can peel off these layers to become exactly who we are and who we were in the beginning. Yes. Yeah. That'd be great. I, I would. I will absolutely listen to that episode. Let's um, let's talk a little bit about anchors. So we've been talking a lot about the oscillatory patterns and how we can move and shape shift through the year and you know through the arc of our life. But there are some content constants that you talk about in the book as well. And and you give the example of you know a teeter totter or a seesaw moves you know through a fixed central axis. Mm -hmm. A wheel has you know. A uh -huh. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the constants that remain constant through the year. Yeah. So my intention with um, writing the chapter, which is incidentally called Anchors, was to both give people a concrete, simple, highly accessible starting point in each of these four areas, and also to recognize that not everything wildly oscillates and changes dramatically across the course of a year. Um, and so when I really started looking at this and saying like, what things do oscillate and what things either oscillate less or don't really oscillate at all. And what I came to was that there are certain features, um, which I called anchors, um, that, that have to stay steady. So in the realm of food, it is getting a good source of complete dietary protein at each meal. And so, you know, to your, you made a point earlier about eating a, this huge bolus of, nut of nutrients, you know, in the evening after dark. and um, we need to do a better job, not only of getting adequate dietary protein, but getting it across the course of multiple meals. And if anything, slightly front loading it earlier in the day, rather than doing, you know, a carbohydrate rich, low protein breakfast, getting a little bit of protein because we put some, you know, some chicken on the salad at lunch and then eating a really protein rich dinner, um, spreading that out so that we're getting the stimulus, the, um, the amino acid stimulus for protein synthesis multiple times throughout the course of the day, we have to reach that threshold. Yes. Um, and so that's a really obvious one and a really easy one. And if people can only change one thing in their diet, um, and let's assume they're not necessarily eating the standard American diet, but they're eating some version of a whole foods type nutrient dense diet, make sure you're getting enough dietary protein at each meal. That's the smallest, lowest common denominator. And that's a thing that stays constant across the course of the year. And then the amount of plant-based uh, plant dietary carbohydrate and fat, both from plants and animals, is roughly inversely proportionate, but it, it moves around this fixed axis. This, um, you know, and teeter-totter is a great little example there because we have this inverse relationship, uh, whereas protein is relatively constant. Um, in the realm of movement, we have this, similarly, we have this um, axis of solid functional strength training. And that doesn't mean extreme bodybuilding or extreme powerlifting or competition in athletics. That means picking up heavy stuff, maintaining your physical capacity and resilience through wide ranges of movement that occur in real life that are kind of the, that we call what we call functional movements. Um, and doing that with enough frequency to maintain strength, joint mobility, physical function across the course of decades and decades. Because if you look at the research on, and you of course know this, if you look at the research on um, what keeps people 
living alone independently, which keep you know people ability to, to be independent into their 70s and 80s and 90s is physical strength and mobility. Yes. And that's something that we have to, you know, just kind of plug away at all the way along um, to maintain that. So then there's, then there's that. And then there's just the general movement. So we are adding and subtracting that the oscillation is more and less general movement, more and less high intensity movement. Um, but there's all, sorry, I said that wrong, more or less high intensity movement and more and less long duration movement with lots of general movement interspersed throughout the, you know, the course of the whole year, um, sort of as an adjunct part. And that means that we still do carry stuff and we still walk up and down the stairs and we still, um, get up and down off the ground and we still reach things in the high shelves Like we still do real life stuff. Um, in the realm of um, light dark cycle, um, the anchor is time and darkness. And um, that is what that na very naturally does is it gives us the opportunity to get more deeply restorative sleep. So it's not a quantification of how many hours you sleep. It is um, getting away from the artificial light after dark and spending more time in darkness, which probably ends up with a little more sleep, but not necessarily. That's not necessarily the quantifiable goal. And then on the social realm, it is a recognition that humans need each other and humans need a close clan of people that they can rely on, that they can call at three o'clock in the morning from, from the airport and say, oh, you know, I need help or I got a, a, a terrifying medical diagnosis or my partner just left me in pieces on the floor. We need people who can be there for us. And what I find really interesting is that the research on the perception of social support is a little bit different than the percept or than the received social support. So the, the mental map of trusting and believing that we have people that we can lean on when things get hard, that is actually more impactful to giving us a sense of psychological safety and settling our nervous system arousal than actually receiving social support from somebody. Just the belief that it's there is deeply settling, the trust that it's there. Um, because again, in that, in that ancient world, in, that, in the whole evolutionary past, a human that found themselves alone and isolated had a good reason to be stressed. They were in a world of hurt. Things were bad. And so conversely, when we have that deeply held knowing, that belief that's in us, that someone has our back, um, it's a deeply settling and healing experience. And we need that year round. That's not something that is episodic. So we invest in those closest, most intimate, vulnerable anchor connections. And that starts to sort of self-correct a lot of things in our social and emotional spheres. That's beautifully said. Thanks. And I want to applaud the timing of the release of this book, which is just on the cusp of spring. So the dopamine, the promise of the future, you know, rebirth and potentially how we view our health. So I thought that that was also very clever and well Thanks. done. That was, that, was, that was intentional. There was talk of releasing it um, the first week of January for New Year, New You, New Year's resolutions. And I was like, yeah. no, that's actually antithetical to what I believe because the deep, cold, dark winter is not the time to take on new stuff. It doesn't make yeah. sense. But what you do and I used the word dream earlier, which I loved. What you do in the dead of winter is you dream about what you're going to do and you restore yourself so that when spring comes, you spontaneously, not because you're telling yourself you should, you spontaneously want to go do stuff because you are energetic and restored. And so this springtime 
is the perfect time to try something new, whether that is diving into this book and trying some new lifestyle things, or it is a new hobby or a new place you travel to or a new food. Like novelty is the joy of spring. And um, so now is the time to, for all that new stuff. And so if people want to find your book, they can buy it on Amazon, Barnes Amazon, Noble. Barnes Noble, Indiegogo, all the places you can buy books. Um, you can, um, there's also a, a link at DallasHartwig.com. And uh, there's also information on my Instagram at Dallas Hartwig. Um, so there's lots of different places. And if you can't figure it out, um, Google Dallas Hartwig and Google will point you in the right direction, I hope. Well, I will make sure that all of this information is in our show notes for our listeners. And I wanted to thank you. This has been just an absolute pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. And I'm wishing you the best of luck for this book. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.